Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 65 of the Julia LaRoche Show. I'm excited to bring to you this conversation with Mark Yusko, founder, CEO, and chief investment officer of Morgan Creek Capital Management, which has nearly $2 billion in assets under management. I've known Mark for several years, and we first connected over the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is my alma mater. Mark was once the CIO and founder of the UNC Management Company, which is the Endowment Investment Office of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. At Morgan Creek, he deploys the endowment model as the cornerstone philosophy of his firm. So we do a nice deep dive there. We also talk about this investing mandate of investing in innovation. We go through some amazing examples from early in his career to the opportunities that he sees today, especially around blockchain and Bitcoin. Mark is also what he calls an OMG, which stands for old macro guy. We get his take on the macroeconomic backdrop. We also get his thoughts on the banking crisis that's playing out and why he thinks that we are on the precipice of the global financial crisis too. We also uh, learn about this amazing chance meeting he had with legendary investor Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital Management this week and some of the lessons there. I really enjoyed having Mark on the show. I learned a lot and I think you will too. And by the way, if you are new to my channel, welcome. It is so great to have you. Please be sure to hit that like button and that bell so you can subscribe and I can bring you more great conversations with some amazing guests. I can't wait to share more. And if you're listening uh, to the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review so I can continue to bring more amazing content to you. Thank you so much for your support. And I really hope you enjoy this episode with Mark Yusko. Mark Yusko, founder, CEO, chief investment officer of Morgan Creek Capital Management, also managing partner of Morgan Creek Digital. Morgan Creek, for those who are watching and listening, uh, was founded in 2004 and currently manages close to $2 billion in assets. Mark, it is so great to see you again and great to welcome you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. No, Julie, great to be with you today. And and as we were talking off air, you know, welcome home back to North Carolina. I'm you're actually more from North Carolina than I am. I, I've been here now 25 years, hard to believe. Um, but so great to to reconnect and and excited to be on the show. Yeah, well, I'm originally from Virginia, but I did go to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So it does feel like coming home. Um, and I love this state so much. And when you and I first met, gosh, I don't even know how many years ago at this point, a long time ago, it feels yeah, like um, when I was a reporter, a business insider, that's when I learned uh, that you um, were the CIO and founder of UNC Management Company, um, the endowment office for the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So that was kind of the common ground we established uh, back then. And I kind of want to hear a bit about that experience, because when I was reading your bio and a bit about um Morgan Creek, you all kind of deploy this endowment model as the cornerstone philosophy of Morgan Creek, which is so interesting to me. I'd love to hear a bit more about your background and this endowment model philosophy. Yep. So, you know, the in in a word, the endowment model is is a little bit, I don't know, maybe misnamed. You know, the endowments get a lot of credit for being the innovators around this idea of asset allocation and, and long-term investment thinking. 
But there are some other sophisticated investors, some family offices and, and some pension plans uh, that follow the same model. But but the basic idea behind it is you're taking advantage of, of time horizon arbitrage. You know, endowments, foundations, they, they live forever, individuals, finite life, we need more liquidity. And that illiquidity premium, uh, investing in private forms of, of equity or debt, uh, add value to the overall long-term return. So uh, at its core, it's really a, a time horizon arbitrage. There's also a, a value bias behind it in the sense that uh, if you think about the, the participants in a market, right? You can be an investor. Well, what's an investor? An investor tries to buy assets below their fair value and hold them till they become, you know, over more than, than fair value or overvalued. And then there's people who, who don't really think about valuation. They're more trader oriented. They, they just want to buy movement, right? Things are moving, they'll, they'll buy and they'll sell. Then you've got you know, what are terms deemed speculators. Speculators are interesting in the sense that you know we we often think of them as as the people who are just you know picking something because it happens to be moving really quickly and they're they're buying it maybe they're buying it uh, with leverage. Really, a speculator is is just the other side of a hedging transaction. So a hedger is somebody who who needs to offload a particular asset. So let's say an oil company drills a bunch of oil. They need, need to sell it to you know, pay for, for new machines and, and new equipment. So they, they sell it in the futures market. So for every sale, there has to be a buyer. So a buyer, a speculator would be somebody who doesn't really have any interest in the oil. They just, they're buying that other side of that asset. The gamblers are the tough part of market participants, right? They're the people who, who really are I'll call them the meme stalkers, the people who are you know, buying on big margin, playing in the crypto markets. They're really not doing fundamental analysis. They really are there more for the, the thrill of the win. Uh, unfortunately, like going to Vegas, they, they tend to lose more than they win. Um, but that's a long-winded way of saying that the endowments want to be investors, right? The endowment model is about investing, about buying assets, that are undervalued and, and not really speculating on, on future appreciation of, of different assets. We all we all want future appreciation, but it's it's a, a different mindset when you focus on value. Then there's a couple other little things that make the endowment model unique. Um, one is this high equity orientation. Uh, what does that mean? Well, equity doesn't just mean stocks. You know, there's there's four assets. Uh, that you can own. There are stocks, there are bonds, there are currencies, and there are commodities. And I would say really in this world, you can either be a loaner or an owner, right? You can either loan people money, so you're a banker uh, or a, uh, a lender, or you are an owner. You you own an asset, now, whether that's a, a company or a stock or, or real estate. And so if we think about it in, in those terms, equity is ownership, debt is, is the other side, the loaner part. And if we think about how an endowment or, or other investor would take risk, well, if we don't take any risk, we just leave our money in cash, gets the risk-free rate of return, you know, hence the name, you're not taking any risk, so you get a very low return. 
And usually that return is offset by inflation. So if you think about it, you, you put your money in a, in a cash account today, it makes 1%. Inflation, well, actually, inflation is higher than 1%. So you're actually losing money. You're losing purchasing power. So there are risks that you can take to earn more return. So you could lend your money out and you charge a return above the risk-free rate. And that's why bonds long-term earn about 2% above risk-free, 6% on average, some years more, some years less. Last year, really bad year for bonds, a little better this year. Then the second risk you can take is equity risk. And equity is higher risk, so you get more return. Well, why do you get more return? Well, it's because if you think about a company, a company borrows money. It has to pay back that money before the equity has any value. So I always differentiate uh, debt is a contractual claim. If I lend you money, I expect you to pay me back. And if you don't pay me back, I can sue you. Um, and equity on the other hand is a contingent claim. If a company can't pay back all their debt, the equity holders don't get anything. The money all goes to the to the bondholders. Unless, of course, you happen to live in Switzerland last week that uh, invalidated the bondholders' claim in favor of the equity holders' claim. That that opens a whole can of worms we, we don't even want to talk about. So I kind of drifted far away from, from, from the answer, but high equity ownership, so you get a higher uh, risk-adjusted return long duration, taking advantage of the illiquidity premium, because that third risk that you can take in markets is just illiquidity. You know, if I buy a, a stock, I can sell it to you tomorrow on an exchange very easily. If I invest in a private business, you know, Morgan Creek's a private business. If I wanted to sell my shares at Morgan Creek, I have to find a buyer who would then do an analysis and evaluation because there's not instantaneous market for those private investments. But private equity private real estate, private energy, private debt, all those private investments earn higher returns. We've all heard about venture capital or private equity, you know, Bain and KKR and, and Sequoia. Uh, if you look at the long-term returns of private investments, they're the highest. And then the last thing, and, and that's a long answer, but, but the that's biggest great. differentiator of endowments versus all the other investors, and it's my pinned tweet on Twitter, right, is, is the greatest wealth is created by being an early investor in innovation. What that requires is for you to invest in something that you believe in before others even understand it. You'll be mocked and ridiculed for your non-consensus actions, but it's totally worth it. What the endowments do differently than everybody else is they have a very large weighting, 15, 20, maybe even the mid 20% uh, allocation to venture capital. Venture capital is the systematized investment in innovation as an asset class. And that means starting new companies, uh, taking risks to, to back founders. And that process has significantly higher returns over long periods of time than all other investment strategies. Now, it has really high risk. If you just did one venture capital, deal, you put all your money in XYZ, great idea, it could go up a lot or it could literally go to zero. And unfortunately, most good ideas actually don't, don't work out. A few work out okay, and a very small number work out incredibly well. And that's something called the power law. In venture capital, you know, many investments just 
don't work out because you're taking big risk. You're, you're backing new ideas. Some do fine, but a few have life-changing like returns. And it's why the, the total return of venture capital is so high. So I didn't give you any of my background, just uh, real quickly like that. You know, I grew up thinking I wanted to be an architect, went to school to do that, decided I didn't like that very much, shifted to pre-med, didn't have a good answer for why I wanted to go to med school, when I was doing med school apps, so I went to business school instead. And then I've just had a series of happy accidents, Julia. I, I got a job with an insurance company, the guy was doing investments, retired, started doing uh, bond management. Then I left to go work for an equity firm in Evanston, Illinois, run by two professors at Northwestern. And then I got the call from the alma mater. I got the call to Notre Dame back on the wall behind me. So I went and worked in the endowment there uh, as the number two guy, always going to be the number two guy, the number one guy. We were a year apart and it was, you know, he was going to be there forever until he retired, which he just did recently. And uh, then back in, in 1998, I got the call from a recruiter down here in North Carolina and told my job, my wife, hey, there's a job in North Carolina. She said, take it. I said, don't you want to know what it is? She says, no, I just want to live in North Carolina. And she was right, as usual. And uh, we've been here 25 years ever since. And I, I did UNC for seven years, ran that endowment, and then brought that endowment model uh, to people at, at Morgan Creek starting in 04. That that was an incredible um, answer to the first question. I took a lot of notes. I was just smiling because I'm like, I'm already enjoying this conversation, learning a lot from you, Mark. And um, a, a couple of things that, that stood out to me that I love what you said about this kind of time horizon arbitrage. Um, and yep. also the keyword being innovation, this investing in innovation mandate. And I'm also looking at the pinned tweet you have, um, and I'll post it um, on the video. The greatest wealth is created by being an early investor in innovation. Making that investment requires believing in something before the majority of people understand it. You will be mocked, ridiculed, and criticized for your non-consensus action. It is absolutely worth it. So my follow-on to you is, it seems to me somewhere early in your career, you had this unlock yep. around investing in innovation. Uh, could you take us back to that time where you first experienced this? Maybe it was a bit more contrarian. You saw, as you put it, life-changing like returns. Yep. No, it, it, it's it's a great question. And you know, well, you know what's fun about, about doing podcasts with uh, a, a great host is the follow-up questions. Everybody says, oh, the secret to a podcast is... is you, know, you just get great guests and let them talk. Like, no, I mean, talking's easy. What's really hard is questions. I mean, our world's full of answers. Our whole education system's all about answers, regurgitating facts. That's the easy stuff. What's really hard is to formulate great questions. So I, I always appreciate the, the follow-up questions. Because well, one, it's the listening the too. You, yeah, you, you hone that skill over time because I used, I'll just quickly interject. And I don't usually do this. I used to get so nervous when I would do interviews before I was thinking, what's my list of questions? My next question. Then over time, I've gotten more comfortable. Where it's like, I'll just actively listen and not know what my exact next question will be, but I'll formulate it based on your answer. Well, no, and that's that right there is the key. And anyone who ever wants to host a podcast needs to listen to that. That is how you do it is, I mean, imagine that actually listening to what somebody's saying. I mean, our whole world has gotten away from that, right? People don't listen to understand. They listen to wait for their point to make their next point, mm -hmm. right? And try to convince the person to come to their side. I'm like, no, 
we want dialogue and debate in search of truth. What we don't want is convincing each other and, and then not listening to each other. So I really, really do appreciate that because I, I did have that aha moment. You know, I had that eureka moment uh, early in my career. And so I, I did not intend to become an investment professional. I did not intend to become a, a venture capitalist. I'm now a, a late in life venture capitalist. Uh, you were just getting ready to raise our fourth investment fund. If you had told me five years ago I'd be a venture capitalist, I would have I would have chuckled, right? But I was uh, you know, relatively young, you know, guy in my late twenties, uh, working at my alma mater, and and you know I had a pretty good background in in going to the University of Chicago and studying under. Actually, I did actually study under three different Nobel laureates, which is mind blowing when I think about that. And uh, it was a great gift, right? And and so I, I learned a lot about the basics of economics and finance. And and then I went to work for an insurance company, you know, good old insurance. And I invested in boring bonds, except bonds are the cornerstone of our entire global financial system. In fact, look what happened in the last couple of weeks with bank investments in bonds. Okay, so if you don't understand the bond market, you, you really don't understand finance. I didn't understand it at the time, but but I got my my indoctrination, you know, by fire. Like here, manage this bond portfolio. Okay, and 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 what I did most of my early career is I allocated capital to other people. I didn't actually pick the securities. I picked other people to to pick the securities. So I would make a decision. I want to be in, you know. Uh, corporate bonds or government bonds or high yield bonds. And then I would find managers. And I would joke, I found Dan Fuss before he was famous, one of the most famous bond managers in, in history, the original bond king before, you know, Bill Gross and the others and Jeffrey Gunlock all claimed to be the bond king. But Dan, Dan was and is the bond king. And we allocated money to him and we allocated money to this guy, Mike Brilly, up in, in uh, Minneapolis, who had this really cool strategy where he would he would buy bonds secured by mobile homes, which is actually a really not very good collateral. But because of that, these bonds had a structure that forced you to deposit treasuries behind them. So really, you are buying a treasury portfolio with a much higher yield. And he found a really interesting niche. And so learned about you know reading contracts is pretty important and, and understanding. But did bonds, and then then I went to work for these these equity guys and learned all about how to value a business, and they were deep deep value investors, and it's kind of where I got my inculcation into value is is better than you know growth at any any price. But the aha moment was young young guy at, at Notre Dame, and and we started to invest in venture capital. Well, we really didn't know very much about venture capital. I mean, Scott and I were. We were kids and we didn't have a lot of experience. And so what did we do? So oh, who knows a lot about venture capital? Guys at Harvard, guys at Yale, this guy at Stanford. There was this guy, Harry Turner at Stanford and Stanford management company, right? Right in the heart of Silicon Valley, you know, on Sand Hill Road, office right next to Kleiner Perkins, one of the most famous uh, venture capital funds. And Harry was the nicest guy. I mean, he was our dad's age. And he kind of took us under his wing and he said, I will teach you everything you want to know. And he would march us up and down Sand Hill Road. And we met with, I mean, in hindsight, it's like, it's unbelievable. 
we met with everybody, every firm, Sequoia. I mean, Sequoia, no one had ever heard of Sequoia back in the early 90s. And, you know, there's this guy, Don Valentine, and some people out there knew him. And there's this guy, Pitch Johnson, and another exposure. Uh, and, 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 you know, debt of gratitude to Harry and, and the Stanford team for helping us. Because back then, you could still collaborate. That was the cool thing. Like, on the football field or basketball field, you hate each other. Fine. It's it's like, you know, I'm, I'm actually wearing a color that's closer to that other school, the down, other the school road, down the road. The other school down the road. hate, right? But, but it's okay because I only hate them when we're playing sports. I actually have respect for, you know, the school and, and the professors and, and the students. Um, but Stanford helped us instead of, and on the football field, we don't like each other. We play every year and we don't really like each other, but, but they helped us. And it's a long way of saying we had the chance to invest in this company, Sequoia. And it's interesting because at the time, Sequoia was almost going out of business. Don Valentine, who famously was one of the first investors in Intel, pretty successful company, and he'd made a bunch of money and he was started this fund and he had some partners and he hired this young guy named Michael Moritz. And Michael was a Wall Street Journal reporter because being a journalist actually might be the best training for investing because you learn how to ask good questions. And that's what investing is all about, asking good questions. So he hires this guy, Michael Moritz, and his other partners were like, Don, what the hell? This, this kid's never done a deal. What, what, what do you mean? We're, we are the future of this firm. And they split into two firms. And you had to choose. Which one do you go with? And we're like, Harry, what do we do? He's like, Don. Don is, is the man. Don knows. And these other guys, they're, they're good. But if they don't want to be there, I trust Don's instincts. This is going to be this. Year. Turns out Michael turned out to be a pretty good investor. He did this thing called Yahoo uh, that you kind of know. And then he did this thing called Google. Now, here's the thing. We gave Don and, and Michael's fund uh, 5 million bucks out of our endowment, which at the time was right around a billion dollars. So that was a meaningful commitment for us. And they put half a million dollars in this little company called Google. Now, the funny part of the story is when we went to a board meeting to tell the board that, that they had met, like, that's a stupid name. Why would you want to invest in Google? Now it's a verb, right? I mean, but that's a stupid name. And you say it's a search engine company. Well, there are already 20 search engines. There's Alta Vista and Web Crawler and Ask Jeeves. What, what, what do they need? Why do we want to have another search company? Like, well, they say they've got this innovative technology. It's not really search. It's a new way to process information. And turns out it, it was. Like most people have no idea that there are 1.7 billion websites on the planet. It's a lot of websites, right? From one in 1991, there was one. Tim Berners-Lee set up the first one. And today there's 1.7 billion, probably more than that, because you know some formed every couple of minutes. Half are essentially owned by Google. What are you talking about? Well, every time you ask a question, back to questions. Every time you ask a question, you type a question into Google. If that question's already been asked, which most questions have already been asked, there's a website that has all the information to answer that question. And it directs you there. That's called indexing. So it doesn't have to search the whole World Wide Web for the information because everyone knows where the information is. Like my son and I play Magic the Gathering. So when I tweet, hey, what's a Phyrexian 
uh, obliterator. By the time I type in Phyrexian O, it knows exactly what I'm going to ask. And it sends me to the website. And there's a picture of this funky looking beast. Tells me all the things I need to know, how to build a deck around it. It's unbelievable. That changed the world. So that they put 500K of our 5 million bucks into this little company. It turned into $200 million. There should be a quad at Notre Dame called the Google Quad. Because we turned 500K into 200 and I, and I literally had the aha moment, the light bulb goes off of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This, is, this is true innovation. And, and you think about all the different innovations that have happened. And this is where I really went down this path of, of technological innovation over time, producing the greatest wealth. I mean, if you look at, at Western Union, telegraph company, they start stringing copper wires all over the country to let people communicate by telegraph. And that company was started with venture capital, $11,000, back when $11,000 was a lot of money in the 1800s. That 11,000, uh, not, I'm sorry, no, no, no. It was $7,000. It made 11,000% return, 11,000%, not, not 11%, but 11,000% return over the next decade. Then the telephone came along and wiped out all the market cap of Telegraph. And they said, oh, there's no read for it. You can't make voice go over copper wires. I'm like, well, turns out you can. And Alexander Graham Bell was right. And there's innovation after innovation after innovation. And uh, I had this really, again, big aha moment. It, it changed the course of, of my life in that I realized that my life, and it's just serendipity, I lived the computing evolution. So I was born in 1963 and, and my dad uh, was part of a team that sold and installed mainframe computers. 1954, there was an innovation out in Boston, a place called Route 128, and it was the center of the universe. Silicon Valley wasn't even really functioning yet. Um, I mean, DARPA was there and Stanford was there, but the center of the universe, all the great innovation was happening up around New York and, and Boston. And this company called DEC, Digital Equipment Corp, was founded again with $70,000 of, of venture capital and turned into a multi-tens of billions of dollars of value. And they invented mainframes. And then you had Burroughs and Wang and IBM and a bunch of other, and big computers, like bigger than the building I'm sitting in, uh, were, were the norm. And they weighed thousands and thousands of pounds. And, but then 14 years later, there was an innovation out in Silicon Valley. And this guy, Dan, Don Valentine, met some guys at Fairchild Semiconductor. And they, they invested in this little thing called the, the microchip. And suddenly, the center of the universe shifted and all this innovation around mini computers. Now, the computers were only maybe as big as this, this office I'm sitting in. Well, then, where I grew up, actually, in Seattle... Um, there's another innovation around this thing called personal computers. And Steve Ballmer's mom famously said, honey, why would you want to work for that company? No one would ever want a computer in their house. He has 18 billion reasons he was right, mom was wrong. And why did mom say that? Because the chairman of DEC, I mean, the president of DEC, Ken Olson, said it. He's like, we make big computers. Why would anyone want a computer in their house? Just buy the computers from us. And at the time, Charles Darwin um, had basically said, you know, I think 
one computer will probably suffice for all a country's needs. So there's probably a global market of about 120, because I don't know about 120 countries back then. I mean, craziness. And so turns out Microsoft was, was a pretty big deal. And 14 years later, now, wait a minute, why is it always 14 years? 1954, 1968, 1982, 1996. 1996, I'm sitting in chap in uh, South Bend. We're making that investment in Google. This thing called the internet gets created. Internet. Oh, Paul Krugman. It'll never be more important than a fax machine. Yeah, fuddy-duddy. Hmm, interesting. I, I would say the internet, you know, probably more important than the fax machine. You and I are using it right now. Um, and what was interesting about that time, Julia, was you, know, you and I are using something right now called voice over internet protocol. Right? So you can hear my voice clearly. I can hear your voice clearly. It's going across internet and it's free. We're not paying anything for it. At the time in 1996, you know, back before I went, before I uh, had gone to college, uh, I used to have a long distance girlfriend and she was, I was in uh, uh, Seattle. She was in Texas and we, I'd call her up and say, oh, what, what's, what's up? Nothing. What are you doing? Nothing. What are you going to do later? I don't know. Nothing. What are you doing? Three hours would go by. My mom would walk in horrified because she just saw, you know, $300 go evaporate up in smoke. What are you doing? We're talking. You're not talking. You you are sitting there wasting money. So um, now kids can do that for free, which still wastes time, but, but at least it's free. But the telephone companies tried to block the internet. They literally tried to pay regulators to pass a law that would make voice over IP illegal. Wait, that that sounds like crypto today. That's not that. Wait, wait. Okay, we'll get to that. So Al Gore, who did not invent the internet, but he saved the internet, blocked that bill. So that bill never got passed. So fast forward another 14 years. Uh, I'm actually back in Seattle on a trip. I'm at Craig McCaw's family office. Uh, and he's a famous investor in, in cellular phones back before anyone knew what a cellular phone was. Um, and I asked this guy, do you think the, the mobile net it's going to be as big as the internet. It's like, Mark, are you kidding me? Ask them if they want a computer, like whatever. Ask them if they want a phone, like what? Well, I have two. I don't need another one. So yeah, I got two phones. Everybody's got two phones. Great. So the mobile net was really big. And the iPhone changed everything. The same way the browser made the internet acceptable, uh, accessible, the uh, uh, mobile phone uh, or the iPhone made, smartphone made the mobile net accessible. So now 14 years later, which is next year, 2024, there's this thing called the truth net. What's the truth net? That's where blockchain links everything. And it becomes the operating system for the internet of everything, not the internet of information or the internet of entertainment or the internet of commerce, like the mobile net. This is the internet of value, where all things of value are exchanged over blockchains in a digital world. And wallets, digital wallets become that transformational technology. So again, I've lived that cycle. I've observed it and I've seen that if you invest in those innovations, untold wealth can can be created for for your clients and and for yourself and and uh and humanity gets better for it, right? That's the cool part. Is everybody's like, "Oh, you know, AI is going to steal all our jobs." Hmm? They said the same thing about mechanized work like hydraulic machines. You know, oh, what are all the dish diggers going to do? They're going to retrain and get better jobs. Or the uh, 
I loved it when, you know, when Trump came down to North Carolina and he was the famous clip and he's pointing at this woman saying, I'm going to get your job back. Like, no, no, her job's gone. That textile mill moved to China. It's never coming back. And that's okay because we get cheap textiles, but you can get her another job. You could retrain her. You could, you know, put her in. Because here's the thing. All these technological evolutions, computers are going to steal our jobs, and then the internet was going to steal our jobs, and, and now crypto is going to steal, our, or AI is going to steal our jobs. The reality is there are more jobs on the planet today than any time in human history. It's just a fact, right? Because the innovation creates the new jobs. Anyway, again, long answer. No, I love long answers. Um, and that's the other great thing about podcasts is you can actually go that long. I, okay. Before we get into this like innovation cycle that we're in, I think it might be helpful to frame up kind of the macroeconomic backdrop and how that could also be conducive. And especially as someone of your stature, um, someone who is a hedge fund manager um, who looks at the macro, would you mind just kind of framing that up for us, for the folks? Who yeah. Are so listening? look, I, I am, I'm a self-proclaimed OMG, right? Old macro guy. And there's a handful of us, right? There, there's Novogratz and, and Moorhead and Burbank and, and uh, you know, a handful of, and we, we all came through different ways to get into the macro investment business. And all macro investing is, is thinking about the top down world, you know, how do economic policies interact with, with uh, political policies? And, and at the end, you're thinking about big picture asset allocation. Should I be in stocks or bonds or currencies or commodities? I mean, there are times you want to be in, in Japanese equities or, or the Japanese yen, the currency, because uh, you know that their only way out in Japan through, you know, years of, of overspending uh, and issuing too much debt is they've got to devalue their currency. So that, that's a way to play that. That's a macro trade. And so as a, an OMG and someone who's been investing around macro and with macro investors uh, most of my career, you, you have to think about what drives markets, right? What drives returns? Well, at the end of the day, it's liquidity. Liquidity drives markets. So I have a hashtag for it on Twitter that, uh, what does that mean? Well, what that means is central banks, okay, central banks create currency on top of money. Okay, again, what does that mean? Well, money, money is an asset that exists in the absence of a liability. It's gold. Gold is money. As JP Morgan famously quipped, gold is money, everything else is just credit or debt. So central banks, deposit gold, right? In the US, we have Fort Knox in theory. Uh, and, you know, Russia has a central bank and, and Europe has a central bank and Japan has a central bank and everybody buys up the gold and puts it in the vault. That becomes the base layer of money, okay? So then the governments issue debt and then they print money. I mean, in the old days, they printed, they physically printed pieces of paper notes. And in the US, we had green pieces of paper and, in Israel, they have yellow pieces of paper. In China, they have red pieces of paper and everyone had their own notes. And today it's really, you push a button and you make ones and zeros in, in bank accounts. But the idea is, is governments by fiat, which means by decree, they can decide that there is a, a certain amount of new money. Well, money or a currency, currency 
becomes liquidity. Currency then gets deposited in a bank. Now, what's interesting about that is you go to work, you get paid, and you have your 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 money, your currency. You put it in the bank. Everybody says, oh, that's my money. Mm, 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 mm. That's the bank's money. No, 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 it's my money. No, it's the bank's money. It's the, look at their balance sheet. It shows up as their asset, and then they have a liability to you. And that IOU, it's good most of the time. Vast majority of the time, you cash in that IOU, you can get your money out. Unless they decide to delay it because they don't like where you're sending it. Or like if you lived in Cyprus in 2012, they said, you know, we ran out of money. So you get, you know, 25 cents on the dollar. And we're kind of experiencing that the last couple of weeks. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, wait a second. Why, why, why are the banks having a problem? Well, this is how it works. There's something called fractional reserve banking. And it's at the center of, again, humanity in that the Medici's 800 years ago figured out that you could take, let's just use a dollar, put a dollar into the bank. And they're like, okay, well, you're not going to need that dollar right away. So I'm going to lend that dollar to somebody else who needs a dollar and I'm going to charge them interest. Okay, so I'm going to charge them 5% interest and I'm going to pay you 1% on your deposit. Okay? And that 4%, the bank, we make money. That's how banks make money. So then that person who borrowed the dollar deposits the dollar. Now you have two deposit accounts. And guess what? Well, and actually I, I, I misspoke. If someone deposits the dollar, you actually lend out about 90 cents. You don't actually lend out the full dollar. You lend out about 90 cents. So then that person deposits the 90 cents and they open another account and they get paid 1%. And you take 81 cents of that 90 cents and you lend it out again, charge somebody else 5%. So you, you keep a fraction in the bank, fractional reserve, and you can do that about 10 times, okay? About what's called 10 times leverage. You can do about 10 times. And now everybody's winning. Because that single dollar has really generated closer to $10 of economic value. People have started businesses or bought homes. And that's how liquidity is formed. And it all works great as long as everybody doesn't go to the bank at the same time and try to take the money out. Because if anyone has seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, where George says, look, you guys got it all wrong. The money's not in the vault. It's in your house and your house and her house and his house. That's how it works. We lend the money to each other and we use what we need, right? And by generating actual GDP as a community, we grow over time. So all of that works great. Unless there's a bank run. If suddenly everybody hoards and wants their capital at the same time, Bad things happen. And we've seen financial crises all, you know, 1907, there was the Knickerbocker Trust bank run. That's the one, if you go to Wikipedia, that's the famous picture. That was actually fomented by JP Morgan. He famously quipped, this is one of my favorites. I like a little competition. And Knickerbocker Trust was getting too big. So JP Morgan said, oh, we got to put them out of business. So they put them out of business, bought them up for pennies on the dollar. And JP Morgan got, got big and, and important. So ultimately, the macro landscape is driven by bank liquidity. 
And at the base of that is central bank liquidity. And at the base of that is gold. Okay. Now, all that works great. And it has worked great. Think about how great our lives are. I mean, I'm grateful every day I wake up. We live in this great country. It's got all problems and all the stuff that doesn't work. But at the end of the day, it's pretty awesome. And China, 700 million people in the last 30 years from abject poverty into middle class. Do they still have problems? Sure. But they move 700 million people out of poverty. Same thing all over Africa. Lots of don't. Are there still problems? Of course. Do we still need to do better? Of course. But the world is a much, much better place because of fractional reserve banking and because of this, this liquidity driving capital markets and capitalism, right? All these people say, oh, capitalism is bad. No, cronyism is bad. Where capitalism breaks down and dictators get at the top and they control everything and they siphon the money at the top. Look at Maduro in, in Venezuela, look at uh, Cristina down in Argentina, look at Uncle Uncle uh, Bob in, in Zimbabwe before he passed away. Dictators, bad people, do bad stuff. And look, there will always be challenges. But at the end of the day, the world is actually in a pretty good place because of this growth and innovation and reinvestment and, and the use of capital. So when we think about all that, what changed? Well, interestingly, in 2009, this person or persons, or he, she, they are, although I guess he did self-identify once in an email, as, and I'm talking about Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, the founder of Bitcoin. He did self-identify as a he once, but we don't know if it's one he or multiple he's, or he's and hers, or we, I actually think it's a group of four guys and one has passed away, which is why that that money never moves uh, out of the original wallet because it was called a multi-sig wallet. And if one of the persons passed away, you can't get all four signatures. But a uh, story for another day. But what Satoshi did came along and said, you know what? I solved the problem of digital money, which is a really big deal. So if you think about it, again, I'm I'm old enough to remember this thing called record albums. So little black vinyl discs, analog, right? And if I wanted to share with you that music, I had to physically give you the record album. Like I did, I, I lent my Foreigner album to my friend, Lucky Rodriguez in college. He never gave it back. I'm still pissed off about that. Although I am, my wife did buy me for Christmas, Foreigner tickets for this summer uh, here in Raleigh. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but that was analog, right? It was a bearer asset. If I lent it to you and you didn't give it back, I don't have any more. So then electronic came along, this thing called MP3s. Michael Dell actually, you know, uh, invented it, not Apple. Uh, they made it elegant with the iPod, but, but Michael Dell had this little MP3 player and it looked like a little stick. Actually it looked like a little crypto wallet today. But it was this little stick you plug in your computer. And now I could take this electronic file and I say, Julia, here, here's a copy. Send you a song. Here's a song, Hot Blooded. Great. Listen to it. Knock yourself out. You didn't really care if it was the original or a copy. And I could make as many copies as I wanted. But who didn't like that? The music industry didn't like that because they wanted you to buy your own foreigner album and me to have a foreign album. And long story short, they banned it. They had to do it. They shut down Napster. 
Um, and you know, how do you shut down a hierarchical company, right? One CEO, one home office, one server, you arrest the CEO, Sean Knapp or Sean Parker arrested, and they busted his server and that's the end of Napster. So now what, how do we get music? We all stream digital music that is digitally unique in the digital world and can't be copied. So I can't send you a copy of a song anymore because that's not allowed. So I, mean, I guess I could pirate it and, and have bad quality and all that kind of stuff. But, but at the end of the day, digital, a, a unique digital asset is, is a great innovation. So Satoshi Nakamoto came along and said, all right, we have, used to have paper dollars. You and I wanted to exchange. We used to meet at the Buttonwood tree in New York in the 1800s. And I would give you a physical piece of paper or analog, and you would give me a physical stock certificate analog, and we would transact. The problem was, if you've seen the movie Gangs of New York, there were guys in top hats, and they would knock us over the head and steal our stuff. So they moved it inside and made the exchange. And, and then they said, you know, paper, that's bad. That's that's old. Let's do electronics. So they had these things called Q-SIPs. And now if I want to trade stocks with you, you have an account and I have an account, and we trade this alphanumeric Q-SIP. But the problem with that is it's still backed by an analog piece of paper in a file cabinet in a place called DTCC in Texas. So they're going to change that to digital. And in a digital world where everything is digital, which I believe it will, every stock, every bond, every currency, every commodity, every piece of art, every collectible car, every case of wine, every you know private business, all of it will be digital. And we'll trade across these blockchains, these open ledgers. Blockchain technology changes everything because it moves us out of the analog and electronic world into a digital world and strips out $7 trillion of friction, kind of middle person friction. And that's 6 to 8% of GDP around the world is spent on these old systems that are hierarchical, they're slow, they break. And now we have this superior technology that will drive us away from the old macro fiat kind of government controlled world to a more open and where citizens can actually own their identity, own their assets, own you know title to everything. And it's all kept in a public, open, encrypted form. Uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Let me ask you this too. Um, cause I'm looking right now at the price of Bitcoin and it is up as we're recording this on, on Friday, the 24th, it's up 68.54% year to date. And when you were talking earlier about, um, when you put money into a bank, it's not really your money. And right now we are seeing a banking crisis play out, um, yep. bank failures, intervention. Um, it's not just here in the U S we've seen it, um, in Europe as well. Um, I want to hear your thoughts on the banking crisis that we're seeing play out and how you see how you see that playing out. Do you think we're going to get to like a global financial crisis and or another global financial crisis, I should add, um, referring to 2008? And do you think that's a catalyst for Bitcoin? Yep. So a couple of things. So. You know, Bitcoin is a is an interesting thing. What is it? It's a it's a digital store of value, right? It can also be a medium of exchange, but but really it's a digital store of value uh, because it's not very fast. So if you think about computing, you have 
two things that you have to focus on. You can be secure or you can be fast. Can't be both. You can be super, super secure, but you won't be very fast. And you can be super, super fast, but you won't be very secure. And the example I give is, is Visa. So Visa, super fast. Millions of transactions a second processed, but not perfectly secure. I don't know about you, but I've had to get a new Visa number from time to time because someone steals my Visa number by hacking into Visa and stealing it. And I got to get a new number. And they make you whole if somebody, you know, charges stuff, but you know, it, it's not secure, but it's super fast. Bitcoin, on the other hand, super slow, but perfectly secure. Hundreds of millions of transactions over 14 years, not one fraudulent transaction, not one hack, never. And so in computing broadly, you got to have that trade-off. Are you secure or are you fast? Well, if we think about financial services and banking, all of it runs on old technology, right? It all runs on the SWIFT system and Fedwire and ACH. It runs literally, Visa runs on a mainframe computer written in COBOL. I mean, a dying computer language that the only people that can code COBOL are literally in their 80s. And uh, I was talking to the guy at Visa and he said, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of um, of a wall a security moat because not very many people know how to hack COBOL, few do. But problem is when it breaks, we got to put a light on at the Sunnyvale retirement home and some 80-year-old comes and fix the computer. So that's really not a, a very robust system for what most of us consider money. Like I don't use paper money, I use my Visa card. So what's evolving is this new monetary system. And why did it happen? Well, you mentioned GFC, global financial crisis. So there's a reason that Bitcoin was born in January of 2009. It's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. And normally I, I, it, it would, I wear my Bitcoin socks every day. Today I have my magic internet money, Bitcoin wizard socks. It just became a big NFT collection. But I actually have a pair of socks from, with the Genesis block. And the Genesis block, the first thing in the Bitcoin blockchain is a picture of the London Times that says, Chancellor on the brink of second bailout for banks. Basically poking the financial system in the eye saying, if you had a better system, you wouldn't have to bail out the banks. We have a better system. We have Bitcoin. So Bitcoin was born and it went from nothing, literally nothing, 14 years ago, to today half a trillion dollars in market cap. It's pretty amazing. It's actually the uh, 18th largest, if you made it, company or asset in the world. Gold is number one at, at 12 trillion. And then Apple's number two at two and a half trillion. And then you go down. It's the 18th largest asset in the world in 14 years. It's unbelievable, unprecedented. So the gold financial crisis was caused by what? Well, there've been lots of financial crises over hundreds of years since the beginning of, of modern banking 800 years ago. Lots of financial crises, and they always come down to a mismatch of assets and liabilities. The banks take in deposits, which are short duration assets, meaning the, the person can get it anytime they want, and they lend them out longer, right? Either to a loan, like a mortgage, 30 years or 15 years, or maybe they buy government bonds, 10 years, five years, two years. And the longer that duration mismatch, the more risk. Because again, if, if I can't get my money, for 30 years, because it's in somebody's mortgage, and I got to give somebody their deposits today, that's a problem. So 
what has happened over time is, is a bank run starts when people lose confidence that the value of the assets at the bank can meet their liabilities, the deposits. So what happened in the global financial crisis is, you know, uh, banks in their infinite wisdom, or I should say investment bankers in their infinite wisdom to maximize profits said, hey, I got this great idea. Let's take like really kind of mediocre assets, all these subprime loans that people are making because, you know, you can make a lot of money giving somebody a mortgage. So if you can fog a mirror, we'll give you a mortgage and we'll make it interest only. So there are no payments and it'll be awesome. So everyone was speculating in real estate and the world's going, you know, crazy and robust. Everybody's happy. And then they started securitizing these assets and they started slicing and dicing them and making them into all the alphabet soup, the CDOs and the CDO square of collateralized debt obligation. Long story short, we all, you know, if you've seen the movie Big Short, which has some just great scenes where like movie stars are describing these complex financial transactions. So if you haven't seen it, and if you've seen it, watch it again. If you haven't seen it, watch it. And long story short, pun intended, is the system started to unravel and we had a full-on financial crisis and the big banks, JP Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America, I mean, they're on the verge of collapse here in North Carolina, Wachovia Bank, you know, been around for a hundred years, gone, was, was, you know, absorbed up into Wells Fargo. And, you know, at one point, Morgan Stanley was on the verge of being absorbed by Goldman Sachs and learned this amazing story, John Mack, uh, Dookie, but other than that, he's a really good guy. Um, literally got on an airplane in the middle of the night, flew to Tokyo, got a handwritten check from the chairman of Sumitomo Bank for $6 billion. And, he, and you're like, Mark, that's BS. I'm like, no, I, I know the guy who was on the plane with him that carried it in the briefcase with the handcuff, the whole thing, took it back, deposited it and said, no, we're not going to be bought by Goldman Sachs because we're Morgan Stanley. And that's amazing. So total financial crisis. Deutsche Bank was on the verge. Credit Suisse was on the verge. And the governments had to step in and print a bunch of money. So what happened? The value of other assets, gold, started to go up. Bitcoin started to go up. Why did those assets go up? Well, remember what I said. Money is an asset that exists in the absence of a liability. So gold, right? For 5,000 years, a single ounce of gold has bought a fine person's suit. From the age of Cleopatra to a suit of armor, to a zoot suit in the 20s, to Savile Row today. You go to Savile Row, march in, say, I want a, a St. John Knits beautiful suit. It's going to be about 18, 1900 bucks, right? Get a man's suit, same thing. One ounce of gold, perfect store of value. So what, how does that work? Well, it has to do with, we don't price gold in gold, right? We price gold in dollars or yen or euro. So gold in dollars is coming up on $2,000 an ounce. It used to be $200 an ounce or $400 an ounce or $600 an ounce. But the gold stays the, the value. What's happening is when you print more money, the value of it goes down. Think about it. If I had a billion dollars on the table here and the government printed another billion dollars what happened to the value of my billion dollars it just got cut in half and so here's here's the crazy thing we get through the financial crisis 
things are getting better. They, they cut interest rates to zero. They basically lend money to the banks at zero, let them buy government bonds at two or 3%, make a, an, a perfect arbitrage, a riskless transaction. And they kind of reliquify the banks. They kind of let them over 10 years get back to being solid. And 2020 happens. Well, what happens? Well, globally, we make the worst policy decision in the history of policy decisions to lock down the global economy over the flu, literally, right? And manufacturing collapses, activity collapses. Why is that bad? Well, geez, to restart, we got to print money. So the U.S. government, central bank, U.S. central bank, printed 50% of all the dollars that have ever existed in the history of our republic. We've been a republic for 247 years. 247 years. 245 years, half the money. Two years, half the money. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. And so you think about it, what should have happened to the price of gold? Should have doubled. But it didn't. Why? Well, the banks, the big banks, JP Morgan and others are spoofing. It's a process of holding the price down using futures. They actually got fined a billion dollars for it last year. And they're like, yeah, but we made 20 billion. So what's a billion? That's like 5% cost of doing business. Well, Bitcoin should have doubled. Wait, it did. It went from 10 to 20. No, no, Mark, it went to 70 and then it crashed. Yes, but the value, right, went from 10 to 20. Why? Because one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. But we don't price in Bitcoin. We price in dollars or euros or yen. Like if you go to Venezuela and you look at the price of Bitcoin in Bolivars, there's never been a bear market. It's only made higher prices. If you go to Turkey and you price Bitcoin in Lira, it's never been a bear market. It just goes up because those currencies are being rapidly devalued, which is what all governments eventually do. They devalue their currency. Julia, here's a crazy stat. History of the world. There have been 775 paper currencies starting in 1300 with uh, flying money in China. That was the first paper currency. And uh, in that, you know, thousand plus years, uh, no, I guess about uh, a thousand years, 800 years. Uh, in that 800 years, um, we basically had three quarters of those currencies disappear through massive printing. Uh, I have actually over on my desk, you can't see it, but I have a 100 trillion Zimbabwe dollar bill. Wow. 100 trillion. It would not buy a loaf of bread today. But they just kept printing money thinking that was going to solve the problem. And in the US, we started printing money thinking it would solve the problem. But here's the problem. If printing money created wealth, wouldn't everyone just do that? Of course. But that's not what creates wealth. What creates wealth is innovation, company formation, new ideas, right? Amazon did not exist 26 years ago. Jeff Bezos drove across country, quit his job with a big hedge fund, making lots of money, drove across country to Seattle, where I grew up, crashed on a friend's couch and said, hey, can I go talk to your clients, trying to raise money for this idea I have? He was a broker uh, for uh, one of the big shops, Smith Barney back then. And he went out and here was his pitch. I got this idea to make an online bookstore. You're probably going to lose all your money, 
but I'd really like you to invest $50,000. Like that, that's the pitch. That, that's a bad pitch, Jeff. That, but that was the pitch. Most people didn't give him any money. Thankfully, my friend did turn into $300 million. Wow. And he sold early. It would have been actually worth multiple billion, but he 300 million was fine. It's still great. But, yeah. you know, it's still not so amazing. But, but 26 years ago, that company didn't exist. Today, they employ over 5 million people. Over half of the new job formation in the last 12 months was Amazon. People don't understand the power of innovation and new ideas. It's not money printing. Money printing doesn't create wealth. Great ideas create wealth. And we want to tax the billionaires. We want to tax Jeff Bezos. Are you joking? We want to tax innovation and wealth creation? It's idiotic. Capital gains should be free, right? We shouldn't tax income. We should tax consumption, right? If a billionaire wants to buy a yacht, tax them a lot. But if they don't want to buy a yacht, they want to invest and create more new ideas, we should give rebates for that. I shouldn't tax that. Now they want to tax unrealized gains. I'm like, are you joking? I mean, Ms. Warren is it's phenomenally a stupid idea. Yeah. But anyway, I digressed from, from the original point. I don't mind. I, I think it, I think it's so fascinating if you wanted to finish that point. Well, no, it's just that, you know, we're on this precipice of this, you know, second financial crisis. Uh, I'll even say we're there, right? I hashtagged it this morning, GFCII, uh, so GFC2. And it's funny, you know, <laughs> I was joking with a friend of mine. He said he heard Ms. Yellen talk. I'm like, no, she she must have passed away because she said there would never be another global financial crisis in her lifetime. So she she clearly must have passed away if there's another financial crisis, which I will argue there is. And look, Credit Suisse, 167-year-old institution, just got absorbed by UBS. That doesn't happen unless you're in crisis. Deutsche Bank crashing this morning, as, as you and I are recording this. Um, probably won't crash. Look, that is the National Bank of Germany. There's zero chance it goes to zero. Just like when Bank of America, Bank of America should have gone bankrupt. Should have, right? Their assets didn't meet their liabilities, should have gone bankrupt. But it would have been inconvenient for too many people for Bank of America to go bankrupt. So they let them survive. Same with Citigroup and JP Morgan and Wells Fargo. Um, Iceland let their banks fail and then they started over. Here we let the bad guys you know, get off and, and actually give them a bailout. So why do we have a bank run? I mean, why do we have a crisis this time? It's a little different. This time, the banks didn't make a bunch of bad loans to houses that didn't really exist. Or it's not like the 1980s where we had this saving loan crisis where people were actually stealing the money. And that's why the books didn't balance. Here, the government forced the banks to buy government bonds. So banks would take the deposits and instead of making loans, they were incented. I shouldn't say forced. They were incented. So the Fed would say, look, we'll lend you money at 25 basis points if, wink, wink, nod, nod, you buy the treasuries because the Chinese won't buy them and the Japanese won't buy them and the Russians won't buy them because of all the sanction problems. So we need someone to buy the bonds because we don't want to stop spending. In fact, they increased the deficit to $4 trillion, with a T. And- just so people remember, a trillion is a big number. Like you and I would have to stay here on, on the line for 31,710 years and spend a dollar every second. That's one trillion. That's a lot, right? 31,710 years, dollar a second. So 
We increased the deficit, got to issue a bunch of bonds. So they basically said to the banks, buy these bonds. Okay, so you're yielding 2%, maybe 3%, paying 25 basis points. Awesome. But then they jacked up rates. Powell comes in and jacks up short-term rates. Well, then what happens to your longer-term bonds? Boom. Worst year on the bond market in history. So now all these banks have unrealized losses. So a bunch of people start putting that on Twitter. Oh, there's all these unrealized losses. Well, you better panic. You better. And then these idiotic venture capitalists told all their companies to withdraw their money. And they incited a bank run. And what people didn't think about was in the old days, a bank run, you had to you know put on your suit and tie and you had to run to the bank and, and actually withdraw your money, stand in line. Now you just push a button. So $42 billion got withdrawn in one day, two weeks ago, Friday, from Silicon Valley Bank. And suddenly they had to sell bonds at these lower prices and it created a crisis. And, and the government actually did something smart here. They said, no, 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 look, these are money good. The government's not going to default on these bonds. These are not like bad loans to bad, stupid houses or no one stole anything. So just give us the bonds back and we'll lend you 100 cents on the dollar and we'll just hold them till maturity because that's what central banks do. They are the lender of last resort. And that quelled fears for a little while until, again, the idiots on social media started saying, no, 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 this bank and this bank. Like, just stop. The banking system is not designed for panic, right? The banking system is designed for calm. They tweeted that this morning, right? The edge today is calm. If everybody just remains calm, it says, I don't really need all my money today. I mean, I have money in a bank and I need some to pay my bills and I need some to make an investment, but I don't need it all. So leave it there. Just stop panicking about it. But panic is, is hard and it's hard. It's even harder in the world in which we live in today, which is totally globally connected, totally social media influenced. And we just need more voices of reason than these fear mongers, right? Clickbait, you know, headlines, all that stuff. I don't know. It's, it, it, it is a challenging environment, but King Solomon's advisors were right, right? King Solomon famously hired his advisor said, I want you to find me one sentence that will always and forever be true. This too shall pass, right? So this too shall pass. I love um, that. Mark, I have so enjoyed having you on this show. I want to have you back because you are so fun to talk to and listen to. And I was hoping if you don't mind, can you just take a few minutes um, to share any parting thoughts? Also, yeah. I know you got to meet this week with um, legendary investor Howard uh, Marks of Oak Tree Capital. I'm so jealous. He is a dream no, look, guest of this, mine. This, this was the craziest. I don't know if we'll be able to get it oh. on the video. but um, Look, that's the picture. And I mean, it was, it was otherworldly. So I'm out in Park City at this uh, annual meeting of a crypto hedge fund that uh, I know and, and love called Permian Capital. And two young guys, computer scientists, started this fund a number of years ago before they even knew what a hedge fund was. And a friend of mine who used to run Charles Schwab's uh, uh, alternative business kind of joined them as, as kind of the, the dad to make sure everything was working right. And you know they've, they've had a, a nice run and, and they got some clients together and I went out to speak. And, and so we're having a, an opera ski uh, on, on Wednesday. 
and it was unbelievable. So we're, we're, we're having this, this chat and we're talking about all kinds of stuff. And, and I've known Howard Marks forever. I mean, we were one of his first institutional investors when he left TCW when I was at Notre Dame and invested hundreds of millions of dollars with him over the years. I, I love to tell the story when I brought him to Carolina to the board meeting uh, after the um, uh, global financial crisis in, uh, no, 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 is the, the 1998 uh, financial crisis um, when, you know, the, the Thai bot and everything was happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, make a long story short, um, he came in and he presents the board and you know, we gave him $25 million from the, the endowment, but he might've raised half that much from all the board members. Like here, take my money, take my money. He, I mean, he's just, he's one of the great investors of our time. I mean, there's Soros, there's Robertson, another North Carolinian, uh, there's Steinhardt, there's Druckenmiller, there's Howard. I mean, he's in the top 10 all time. And, but I've known him a long time. I don't not like we're friends, but we've known each other. And he was walking by with his uh, wife and uh, grandkids. And I didn't see it because it happened behind me. But the guys around the table said, he kind of said, you, you guys go ahead. And he walked around and there was an empty chair next to me. And you saw the guy standing up in the picture and he he kind of came up and and I saw him and he's like hey uh, can 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 I you know, can I join you guys like 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 when you're walking up to the cool kids table at, at high school I mean he was I mean here's a multi billionaire one of the greatest investors of all time like sheepishly it was, saying, it was hey, just a chance meeting chance, no chance meeting wow chance meeting and he said can I can I sit down and I'm, yes and uh, and I said all right guys. We have one of the great investors of all time here. Here's here's your chance to convince him that you know this is a good thing. Said, look, I met with Howard three years ago when we first launched our fund, and he wasn't ready. His son's very into crypto, but he's still got some some uh, skepticism, uh, which is which is good. Um, but here's our chance, and so he he sat down. And we started having dialogue and I was kind of, you know, le asking leading questions to the different people and uh, start talking about 15 minutes in unzips the sweater, takes off sweater, kind of leans in hour, an hour later, his wife calls Howard, where the hell are you? Um, and he would have stayed another hour. I mean, it was one of the most amazing conversations again not him trying to convince us that we were wrong not us trying to convince him that he was wrong it was dialogue and debate in search of truth discussing what is blockchain technology what is cryptocurrency what is bitcoin what is the future of the financial system how is this going to and he immediately got yep all of the intermediary system that's seven trillion dollars a year it's going to get vaporized. So yeah, it makes no sense that a bank loan takes 30 days to settle. It can settle digitally, instantaneously, T0. He got that. It's like the crypto part, I didn't really understand, but now you're telling me it's basically storing energy the same way that electricity changed the world when it moved energy around to power things. And now we can store it and move it around anywhere we want. Okay, that makes sense to me. Now, 
Do I think he ran out and bought a bunch? I don't, I don't think so, but, and I'm just, I'm, I'm actually just praying right now that he writes one of his famous memos, which are, are legendary uh, about this conversation, because it was, it was as good a conversation as I've had in the business in you know, 35 plus years. One, because he's Howard and he's just a genius, but importantly, because you had these young, passionate computer scientists and engineers talking about the melding of this technological innovation cycle that I talked about and finance. So it was, it was special. It was a special day. That is so, I love that. And that's such a great story. And what an incredible, you know, chance meeting. And I would say another reason why I think we're sometimes we're just so on our phones all the time, just be like present and paying attention to the world around you. And you see one of the greatest investors of all time, walk by and in, invite him to sit down, engage in a conversation. So unbelievable. No, and, and that's it. He wasn't on his phone or he would have walked right by us. He was present with his grandkids. Now he did shoo them off and hang out with us. But when he was with us, yeah, there's in the picture, there's one guy on his phone. He was actually tweeting that I can't believe this is happening, oh. right? This this can't be happening. So he was present. Um, yeah. but we were all present and it was but but that's the way it's supposed to work. Exactly. Right? You're supposed to engage with people of different views. You're supposed to seek truth. You're supposed to have dialogue and debate. It's okay to disagree with somebody. It's okay to even leave the conversation not convinced. Yeah, I think that's But just so, have so that important. dialogue is is and but but that's what these do, right? That's what Yeah. podcasts allow us to have that dialogue, that debate, that that education yeah. and at the end of the day um the more we learn and understand the more clear the picture gets. Like I, I say, I didn't get it. 2013, I was handed all of this on a silver platter in 2013. Like I was given the idea about Bitcoin and crypto the same, almost the same day, not quite the same day, but almost the same day, same month and year as the Winklevoss twins. And they're multi-billionaires and I'm not. Now I say, well, they had 500 million to start and I had, I had less than that, but, but okay, still they got it faster than I did because I was skeptical and I hadn't done any work and I had my traditional business. I didn't want to jeopardize the good to go for the great. And so I was slower to do the work, but man, once I did the work and I had that aha moment where I was like, oh my God, blockchain is an operating system. The same way that COBOL is an operating system, the same way that iOS and Android are an operating system. Blockchain is an operating system and it allows us to move value between individuals the same way the internet moves information between individuals. This is big. Yeah. And, and it was, it was cool. So, so one of the young guys uh, at Permian, uh, we were talking and I said, you know, I, I, I've had some setbacks in, in my career and you know, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger and it's all right. And I said, Mark, your best decade is ahead. Like what? He says, your best decade is ahead. Like, damn, I'm about to turn 60. I, I like the sound of that. Um, he says, no, look, you're you are that bridge between TradFi and and DeFi, and you're gonna help us, you know, 
change the world. I'm like, all right, I'm in. I love that. Um, some great wisdom there. Mark, again, it's been so fun having you. Do you want to let folks know quickly where they maybe can find you on social media? I know you also um, co-host a, a podcast. You have great commentaries um, with Morgan Creek. Um, just give you a couple minutes to so, um, share. Where so folks can learn more. we have a website, morgancreekcap.com. And there's some, some stuff and some resources. Um, I don't think we have it anymore, but I used to have links. I used to write these super long letters. Mm-hmm. And then the thing about them is I I would write them about other people. Like I wrote one about Julian. I wrote one about George. I wrote one about, it's always cool when you can say people's name. You don't have to say their last name. And yeah. And everyone knows who you're about. talking about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I wrote one about Seth Klarman and, and uh, yeah, I wrote one about um, Sir John Templeton. Uh, I actually wrote one about Marcus Aurelius. I wrote one about Sir Isaac Newton. Um and the cool thing is, even though they're old, they're actually pretty good. I don't mean that in a braggadocious way, but they actually spent a lot of time on them. And it was funny. Everyone said, you know, because some of these are like 80 pages long. And people said, Mark, no one wants to read 80 pages. I'm like, it's not for them. They're for me. Yeah. If I can't read clearly. what I wrote, how do I know what I think? That, so that's how I feel about it. Yeah. Doing that is, is what it's all about. But I, I do think there's some, some value. I wrote one on the digital gold rush explaining that aha moment that I had where I realized that I'm going to spend the rest of my life in the digital asset space. Uh, I wrote that in uh, 2017, I think. Um, I wrote one on Satoshi Nakamoto and kind of who who he, she, they are. So they're, they're out there on the internet. If you just Google Morgan Creek uh, quarterly letters, uh, I'm on Twitter at Mark Yusko. My wife says way too much. Uh, I like it. I'm actually decent at DM. Um, you know, the trolls, I block that, you know, that was the best advice I ever got about Twitter block early and often, uh, life is too short to engage, but, uh, so legitimate people who really want to get to know, I actually do respond to DMS. Um, and then I do, uh, the, on the margin podcast once a week, uh, which is kind of fun, uh, with Michael Ippolito from Blockworks. And there's a bunch of stuff out there. I, I do a lot of public speaking. Uh, I enjoy it. And so uh, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, so and I, have a, I have a unique last name. I did find, uh, as I was checking into the, the hotel uh, out in uh, uh, Park City, actually near the airport. I stayed near the airport the first night. And she's like, you know, do you have your Bonvoy number? I'm like, I have no idea what my Bonvoy number is. So I'll look it up. And there is another Mark Yusko in Nyasset, New York. Um, and I think, I think I'm, we're probably related. I'm sure we're cousins somehow. Um, cause there are only two brothers with the, the last name. Cause they came in on the boat together. They misspelled the name and they split and there's two branches to the family. Um, but I heard once that he's actually a radio DJ. So, oh. which is very different than, than me, but someday I'll meet the other Mark Yusko, but we're, not, not a unique, I mean, it's pretty unique name. So easy to find. Yeah, definitely easy to find. Well, Mark Yusko, founder, C- CEO, and chief investment officer of Morgan Creek Capital Management. Again, it's been so fun having you on. I can't wait to get you back on the show. Really appreciate being so generous with your time and your ideas. Thank you so much, Mark. Awesome. Thanks, Julie. Really a pleasure. And I look forward to doing it again. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.